0: Welcome
1: to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. (laughs) What you don't see is... (laughs) Every every time, dude, I will throw
0: you off every time.
1: Every time he gives the most messed up countdown to starting this party
0: you suck so, so uh, hard <laughs> which is funny
1: because <laughs> so you do all right everybody welcome back to another episode of ems on the mountain uh i am sean and as always joined by my backcountry partner mike and today we're going to talk about an uh, article from the wilderness medicine magazine which is published by the wilderness medical association or
0: uh, yeah right No, wilderness medical society, medical right? society
1: god look at me i'm even a member Nailed it. So, so published by the Wilderness Medical Society. WMA is actually a, a teaching organization for wilderness first aid and stuff. So this article is titled, titled The Definition of Wilderness Medicine and Wilderness EMS, which is kind of what me and Mike like to think we kind of do. This was authored by Dr. Seth Hawkins. Um, Mike and I have both met this gentleman before. He's a doctor. Nice guy. And uh, W. Tyler Prince, who is also a medical doctor and also a paramedic. So I know in reading the background on Mr. Prince, I know he was a former EMS 911 paramedic. So he's actually got experience in this realm. So his perspective on this is legit. And Dr. Hawkins is actually a huge proponent of the establishment of formal wilderness EMS as an actual subspecialty. So we're we're big fans of him and his thing. So with that... What do you got well, for my first mind?
0: question, Sean, for you, what's the Wilderness Medical Society? And since you are a member and I am not, I feel like you are <laughs> the one to tell our lovely listeners uh, what it actually is so that uh, they have an understanding of who WMS is and, and why it matters. Yeah. Well, since I'm not prepared to discuss this, in short, the Wilderness
1: Medical Society is a, an organization composed of medical providers from various backgrounds, from EMS through physicians. You do not have to be a licensed medical provider to join the Wilderness Medical Society. Uh, You do to do certain certification programs within them. But essentially, their job, really, it's do research and provide advocacy in the realms of wilderness medicine. So they produce and they provide uh, a set of essentially what can be used as protocols for backcountry and wilderness use. Uh, I believe they refer to them now as the WMS practice guidelines. As you know, they're guidelines, they're not written in stone, but they're mm-hmm. evidence based. They're not just, we think this is a good idea. So okay. all the, all of their things are researched, they are peer reviewed, and then they're published. And various wilderness organizations can go in and use those things as a foundation to develop their own wilderness protocols or provide their own guidelines for their providers for providing care in the wilderness.
0: Aside from right, that... That's fair enough. Yeah. Um, so you know, it, I, I know enough about the WMS to be dangerous, <laughs> but I do not know enough about the WMS because I'm not a member. I'm not a card-carrying participant, as it were. Uh, so I figured I didn't know a whole lot. I figured other people wanted to know. So uh, I'm going to leap right in. Let's First do it. First off, Doc Hawkins, I hope you're listening. If not... Oh, well, maybe somebody afforded it to you. I'm all in on the principle of wilderness medicine, but I feel like we didn't quantify a lot here. Out of the gate, I want to kind of talk about the definition of wilderness medicine in my mind and how it might vary a little bit. So in my mind, wilderness medicine, it, it, is, a, it is both a subspecialty of a subspecialty, and I'll explain that in a second. And it's also simply a culmination of different skill sets that a lot of 911 providers have or are forced to execute upon, but it involves primarily not being in a vehicle. It, it involves carrying the stuff on your back. Let me let me differentiate here a little bit. I'm probably yammering at the point where I'm not making zero sense. I have a co-worker uh, at one of the agencies I work for. I don't know if I've mentioned this. I've recently taken a job as a part-time paramedic in a rural system on a chase vehicle supporting uh, volunteer transport units. So myself, my coworkers doing this job, we're in a Tahoe, we are there to support and supplement the volunteers. We're there simply to be help, if you will. But because it is still a very rural community and the system is a, what I call a run from home system, the timing on units getting out the door varies. And in the middle of the night, the volunteers have to be woken from their slumber. They have to get in their vehicle. They have to drive to the call or they have to coordinate and go to the station to provide care. To those sick and injured, the individual that was working that night ended up sitting with a person in severe. Uh, this individual was having a significant allergic reaction. He went down the the. The suite of things we do as paramedics, right? All the way to the point where he was, he had a mag drip hanging and was trying to help this person's respiratory problems. It took almost 20 minutes for a transport unit to get there. In some books, in some categories, that would be called extended care, which is often talked about as kind of defining wilderness EMS. But in my mind, the big variant here is he came with a truck full of stuff. He didn't have to carry it on his back. He drove up the driveway got out of the truck, took his stuff in the house and treated the patient. The transport unit that eventually appeared was able to drive right up next to the Tahoe, unload their cot and bring it out in the house and, and move the person out of the building. The big variant here in my mind, even though the skill set aligns, right? Uh, there's been a recent call at another place where Sean and I run in the wilderness that a coworker of ours had to treat a patient for uh, a number of hours that was experiencing an allergic reaction. But in that case, they had to bring everything they had on their back. They had to bring it in a backpack. They had to go from a place that a vehicle got them to the start of the call and walk to the patient before they began treatment. And in my mind, that's the big differentiation that changes a lot of things between rural EMS and wilderness EMS. Sean, thoughts? No, I, I think you're spot on. And this is
1: something that Dr. Hawkins is getting at, right? So one of the legacy definitions that you'll often find for wilderness medicine is patient care and providing patient care in situations where you're greater than one to two hours from definitive care. So what Mike just talked about, that guy was probably at least an hour before he got seen by a specialist in a hospital. So does that count as wilderness EMS or a wilderness care? And and Mike's brought up the good point of, no, it's really not. Is that paramedic on scene longer than normal? Yes. But did he come with his truck full of supplies? Was there a shortage of equipment and everything else? It's like, no, not really. It's just a longer than usual urban EMS response. So, does that qualify as wilderness? Dr. Hawkins and Mr. Prince or Dr. Prince, I guess. And Mike and I both would say, no, not really. Yeah, you're in the middle of a pretty suburban, urban or not urban, suburban, uh, sparsely populated county at times, but that doesn't make it wilderness. So, I I think you're spot on with that one. And that's what brings us closer into Dr. Hawkins' vision in redefining what this thing is.
0: Yeah, I think it really lands into three different categories, right? You've got traditional EMS, you've got... Well, there's traditional suburban and urban EMS. There's traditional rural EMS. And then there's actually, I'm going to re-quantify my statement and say there's probably four or five different classifications when you really get into it. There's urban suburban EMS, there's rural EMS, there's wilderness EMS, uh, extended care or expeditionary EMS. And then you get into the truly unique things like in a cave, which are really, I would call that almost an environmental specialty of EMS. Uh, I know just in the nature of things I've done in my past, like doing EMS in a cave is just simply different than doing EMS, like even in the woods, being above ground versus not above ground changes some things. So I'm super excited on whole that the conversation is starting within the country around the definition of extended care and the different variants of extended care and how you execute that. The one thing I found really interesting here, there's no unclear definition as to how we measure this. Everything about care is about having numbers. I don't think the time they mention in here, 40 minutes with, you know, 10% of calls occurring over 60 minutes, that causes a struggle, right? It's not how long it takes to get to somebody. It's how long it takes to get them out. If we're talking about measuring the amount of time before a care provider is on scene, you can have environments that would be considered wilderness EMS in my mind, that you can have a care provider on scene much faster than you would in a rural EMS run from home system or a higher level of care available just in the nature of that system and how they pre-stage resources. If I end up going up on Mount Rainier as a pre-staged EMS resource on an expedition that's that's being talked about by a friend of mine, I'm going to be much closer to the people that may be in need that are doing the expeditionary work to do some cave exploration and map some caves just in the nature of being pre-staged versus when I'm working for the wilderness or the rural EMS system. If I'm on one end of the county and I got to drive to the other end of the county and a volunteer truck didn't get out the door, that patient may end up waiting a lot longer. So I think time isn't probably the right unit of measure. I think we probably need to look at not even potentially the transport of of equipment inbound it would make sense in my mind to measure wilderness EMS as the availability of resources and additional equipment and supplies as needed and put a time frame or a measurement on that somehow what do you think
1: well, I agree. Medicine as a science likes measurable metrics. They want to know benefit ratios and things, which understandably so. I'm would, I I'm personally of the opinion, take time out of it almost completely. Time can be used to determine those of us that work, kind of work in this arena. Is this a normal response or would this start to enter that extended patient care or prolonged field care kind of scenario? The general simple definition of prolonged field care is, is care beyond the standard planning horizon. So if you're only planning to care for a patient for, we'll say, two to four hours as a will Provider and now you're at eight hours. You're in a prolonged field care environment. But beyond defining that, I think we don't need time per se. Like uh, urban ambulances, and they want to measure response times. Like are they are you at somebody's house within ten minutes for a BLS call? Are you there within eight minutes for an ALS call? Those are useless metrics, right? That's how fast could you get through traffic today? But they don't really tell you anything about the efficiency and the care provided by those units. So I don't think we need time necessarily as a measurement at all, especially when you're just looking for the basic definition of what makes something wilderness. Even if it took you four hours to evacuate someone, that doesn't necessarily make it wilderness. I'll relate that to this winter. We had significant snowstorms that hit my region. Depending on where you were at, I might be able to get to you within a very extended period, 20 to 30 minutes minutes—for to get my ambulance to you, but then it might take an hour plus for that transport to occur? Did that still make it wilderness? Even though I'm looking at two hours of patient contact and I would still argue, no, I'm in an ambulance, very well stocked on my way to a hospital with physicians. So throwing time in there, I think just dilutes the entire thing and is totally
0: unnecessary. I I tend to agree. So I I like his recommendation here. He said the start time of 911 activation and the stop time of transport from the scene, there's certainly wilderness environments that can be clocked in at less than an hour. And that kind of supports what I was saying too. Units of time don't really matter to me as much as resource limitations and can I get things that I need? I did find it interesting that they referenced that 77% of contacts in a particular national park I believe, it, if I recall correctly, from the article, it's Sequoia Kings Canyon that did the study.
1: Well, I think this is an NPS in general number. I think it, this was a conglomerate that they okay. uh, that they used. But yeah, what Mike's getting at is, is there's a database published by the National Park Service. that Seventy-seven percent of wilderness EMS patients were released by personnel at the scene or not transported. And the note I made to that is, just because it is an EMS call conducted by the National Park Service doesn't make it wilderness. There are a lot of built up established areas within national parks where getting an EMS provider with an ambulance to you inside of 10 minutes is completely feasible. I think some people who might read this would like, oh, oh my goodness, the Park Service is releasing a whole lot of people in the back country. It doesn't state the back country. It says, you know, wilderness EMS patients. My guess is the assumption there is that they're calling every patient the National Park Service is treating isn't wilderness patient, and I don't think that's the case.
0: Yeah, I would be interested. I think I just pulled up the article while you were talking. This article says, the one referenced in the, in the WMS article we're talking about referenced a study called Wilderness Emergency Medical Services, the Experiences at Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. But when you read down into it, it's from a period of August 1986 through July of 1987. It would be interesting to get, I'll call it more modern EMS data. I don't know if that opportunity avails. I may reach out to some of the folks we know in the Park Service and see if we can get some data. I would even be open to making a spreadsheet myself because I'm (laughs) curious. The large majority of contacts in a a National Park Service system are treat and release. It's scrapes and and boo-boos. And quite frankly, I'll say this outwardly from my experience. There's a lot of things that get self-transported in a National Park Service or a wilderness environment that would not get self-transported in a non-wilderness environment uh-huh. because you're the only resource. And yeah. hey, oh, you broke your ankle, but it's the left one and you have an automatic transmission. I've already trussed you up. The, the hospital's 45 minutes away. Start driving. Have a nice day. Unless you really, <laughs> really, really, really want me to take you because I've got 108 miles of road, a few hundred million acres of, of environment, and I'm the only dude here. Yeah, That just doesn't happen in normal EMS I keep saying normal. There's nothing normal about an EMS contact, but in a traditional <laughs> the way, you think about EMS care, it's a traditional EMS contact.
1: No, for sure. Yeah, we've had, Mike and I both, I don't even know, I don't keep track of my own stats, numbers of patients with, I can't tell you that's a fracture, but hey man, that's a fracture. And they're like, that's cool. I'll have my girl just drive me okay, sign here. Holy cow, for me in the normal urban ambulance to let somebody with a fracture wave and not go to the hospital with me is, I'd, I have to have a lot of documentation and call in a soup to verify that this person, no kidding, does not want to go. The, the things that do get waived in a treat and release situation within the park service or in the wilderness environment in general, I think are much bigger injuries than you'll definitely see riding an urban ambulance.
0: I think that's just the nature of the world we work in. I do want to define a little bit better what I consider an, a wilderness EMS versus a rural EMS call. And as we've been talking, I've, I've landed on a definition I like. Let's see if anybody ever listens to our podcast or if it's just the two of us talking and our wives listening. I'm going to give it a slightly different tweak. I'm going to say the definition of wilderness EMS requires a skill set and the ability to bring equipment and supplies to the patient that could not be readily delivered using motor or air transportation. I'm going to say no.
1: Okay, say let's 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 think about that. If you are an austere paramedic in say some place like Australia and you're saying that it's no longer austere if I bring myself in by helicopter you have taken out a huge swath of people who work remote and austere medicine.
0: Uh, no. So let me counter that and we'll see where we land. I'm not saying they don't do remote medicine. I'm not saying they don't even do austere medicine. If Let's use the Australia example because I know absolutely nothing about systems in Australia. So nothing like talking about something I don't know anything about. Kind of like us in this podcast. Yeah, pretty much. We know nothing. Um, <laughs> we're, we're pretty much useless paramedics. If I'm a Wilderness or austere provider in Australia, using the example you, you gave out. And they're, they're, okay, I do know enough about Australia to know that there are some massive parts of Australia that are very, very lowly populated. And there are air medical resources that fly 35, 45, 55 minutes to get to someone and then bring them to care. But if I can land a helicopter with all my supplies 40 yards from the door of the structure that the person is in, that's austere care. It's remote care. It's extended contact time care, but it's not wilderness care. If you're in a place that requires me to either using a vehicle or uh, air transport, whatever the case may be, but I have to land in a certain place and then carry supplies a distance, even if it's a 10-minute walk, I I could get on board with that. But let's call it a little bit further. And everything that I have to provide the care you require has to come on my back. That's when it becomes wilderness. Tell me I'm wrong. I would say you're wrong.
1: You're, uh, which I, I like where you're going. We'd have to define wildernesses anywhere I go as a medic with things on my back, and that's it. Wilderness EMS, and I know why you're wanting to go kind of down this route because it really falls into that limited resources piece. And if I still have some sort of vehicle that's with me, my resources are limited, but not like they are if I have to physically carry it on my back. But I don't think it should be scoped down to a point where it doesn't count if you didn't carry it all yourself for a minimum of. 1.8 miles into someplace that is not accessible by any other means.
0: I'm really truly looking forward to folks sending us emails about their thoughts on this because I understand what you're saying and I'm not saying I'm right. I'm not even holding strong to my argument, but it is clear that we don't have a clear definition of how to talk about these things. It's hard to have these conversations. This is kind of the evolution of EMS. It's an, it's a skill set and an industry that's not that old. I think defining some of these things helps build standards. The reason I'm going down that particular rabbit hole, Sean, and maybe it's the wrong rabbit hole. It's one thing to have an extended transport time. It's another thing to have an extended care time. Those two things can be combined or they can be different, depending. If all I have is what came on my back versus having the ability to get more stuffs, it changes the game as far as medical care and protocol mm-hmm. adherence, in my mind, because if you come with a vehicle full of things and you got your entire suite of, of tools, it's different than decisions you have to make if you still have to walk 45 minutes to get to whoever you're taking care of.
1: All right. So I get where you're going. So we need to, what you really need to be clarifying is it's the limited number of absolute resources that you have available within a given time frame. Because I could be in Arizona And me and you could be mounted on UTVs or ATVs. And if all we still have is the same backcountry medical gear we take with us on those two ATVs, we were motorized, we covered 20 miles in 20 minutes, but I still only have those limited resources. So you're tying it to the conveyance, I think is not necessarily correct. It's the amount of supplies with you, whether I walk, right. Whether I walked my tiny field ALS pack in, or I repelled from a helicopter, they winched me, or I rode a horse or a UTV. If what I have is only those supplies contained in that backpack, that's where you're wanting it to become a wilderness thing. Not, I can walk five more minutes back to my truck and grab another bottle of oxygen, or my ultrasound, or more just whatever gear it is. And I think that's the thing is it's finite resources. Not necessarily the conveyance, but it's you have finite resources that are not so easily
0: replenished. Okay. I'll seed my argument, but I think that's where I'm going. I think you helped me clarify it. But I am going to come back to the article and say, that's not even clear. I think they called it out quite well. We don't have a textbook definition of wilderness medicine or wilderness EMS or what's an operational boundary between a wilderness environment and a non-wilderness environment. And I think over the next three or four years, we're going to start defining those things and it's going to have an impact on how we think about protocols and policies and procedures and regulations. Protocols for the National Park Service that are out there, the default ones that you can find on the internet, actually have contact and non-contact sets of rules because the Park Service has understood that there are times that you simply cannot talk to medical direction. That's kind of I won't call it rare. I mean, I'm not going to say it never happens, but it's it's not the most common thing in most EMS protocols. There usually is not a set of rules that say, by the way, if you cannot contact the medical director, do the following. But I think we need a better definition of the boundary if we're going to continue to move as, as a system and as an industry toward more critical care, quote unquote, things. You and I were just talking the other day when we were on duty together about blood administration and the studies on that and you know, ultrasound, fast exams, looking at ocular nerves, making decisions on all of those care modalities. We need a clear definition of what's wilderness or not wilderness. If we're going to have sets of rules that allow us to do X, Y, or Z, if it's a wilderness environment, but if it's not a wilderness environment, we have to call someone first. Or we have to get a hold of someone first. Maybe that's what I'm struggling with. And I'm, I'm just spending the last seven minutes talking about something I'm not clear on. Yeah. Well, that's,
1: that's the entire point of this article. And that's where, where Dr. Hawkins, I know for a fact, that's, that's his goal is he wants that definition. He wants there to be the And he wants it to be the right definition. And that's what's good. And, you know, getting him and Dr. Prince on board, writing this article, it's like, hey, we can't use this legacy care provided greater than one hour from definitive care, because really, what is that? And then I kind of like they make the argument about what is really definitive care. So if you're having an MI, a heart attack, and I get you to the local regional hospital, are you at definitive care? No, not unless they've got a cath lab or an ICU so then does, that, surgeon, does yeah. that count as me getting you to definitive care in the EMS world? Yes. I got you to a hospital with a doctor, but is that definitive care? No. Cause that's not the end of his, of his care. That patient's going to get transferred on to another set of specialists and another hospital with a different capability. So Dr. Hawkins, I know this is, this is a passion thing for him. And I like, you know, Mike and I are fully on board. Yes. Somebody needs to start driving it, but I agree. It's where do you draw the line? So let's do this within this article. He does publish a new consensus definition that's being used out there. And it is wilderness medicine is medical care delivered in those areas where fixed or transient geographic challenges reduce availability of or alter requirements for medical or patient movement resources. That kind of starts to get at wilderness. Now, could you say that that was me during the middle of that snowstorm? Yeah, you can, but at the end of the day, I think you still have to apply a little bit of common sense. We can try and stretch any non-standard scenario into a wilderness context if we really want to.
0: Well, is Which, is that do we draw a line there? And I, I'm just going to propose something else that hopefully Dr. Hawkins or uh, Dr. Prince will reply to us and say, hey, dude, nailed it. They're probably going to reply and be like, hey, dude, you're off the mark. Um, <laughs> hey, at least we're trying to help to- articulate and push this. That's true. You're absolutely right, right? A snowstorm. Anybody that's done EMS for more than 18 months knows that there's a concept of upstaffing and bringing in additional providers or uh, full staffing, uh, cross-staffed units, et cetera, et cetera, because snowstorms and weather events cause extended transport times or extended availability yeah. times. Natural disasters, another yeah, great exactly. example. I wonder if there's some quantifier in there when we're talking about wilderness EMS to be by default. It's not an extenuating circumstance. It's not a, you know, hey, we know there's weather coming, so there's going to be geographic challenges or reduced availability or resources for a limited period of time. It is a known quantifiable state that there's a limited set of resources at all times and access is difficult. That probably would make sense to me. Uh, I don't know. What do you think?
1: No, I I would agree with that. If you take that definition, care delivered in those areas where fixed or transient geographic challenges, take out the transient. Yeah, Like transient would apply. And and that's in there because of those things like natural disasters, like post-hurricane, post-earthquake, et cetera. I believe, and I could be on crack when I say this, but I believe one of the reasons they did this is for those places who have what we'll say dual sets of protocols, we have our standard everyday operating things. And then we have like the NPS, you have your extenuating circumstance, your We can't make physician contact, et cetera. Here's your alternate set of protocols you can use under these conditions, is why a definition like that is useful. But in my notes, do you really need that? And my answer is no, just because you, you don't need necessarily dual sets of protocols. If you live in a place where this is a serious concern and your paramedics are extremely limited in their scope, and you would allow them to open that aperture up a bit in these extenuating circumstances, I would challenge you to look at your paramedic protocols and why you're limiting them. Same thing for your BLS providers. You know, there's very little that's going to change in post-earthquake California for an EMS provider as they are operating at right now, sunny, 75, partly cloudy, and beautiful. You know, really, what protocol-wise, what's changing? And the answer is probably not much. Maybe some additional analgesia for those longer transport times to get around the roadblocks and the obstructed roadways, maybe. But that's a simple, hey, the OMD has now authorized you to double your dosing. Cool, problem solved. I don't need a whole nother set of protocols for those people.
0: Yeah. Okay. I like the definition we're getting to. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing other people's thoughts on it. I'm going to move on just a little bit in the article and talk about why I think it's so important. And I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent. Our listeners are going to be... Bored by the end of it, but that's what happens when I start talking. I bore people, Sean. We have to get to the definition because we have to provide better care. We have to provide better care. We have to position ourselves to make the argument that the care we provide is the best care that someone could receive, no matter where they are. How do I explain this? There are a number of times that I have been, I have done QAs, I've reviewed calls, I have I have been contacted by providers, people have asked me questions. And the level of care that somebody received because they were in an, in a wilderness environment was just markedly different than, than what they would have received if they were in even in a rural or an urban system. And I struggle with that and it's not okay with me. I think patients deserve the level of care they deserve regardless of where they are. And we need to march as a system toward developing structures that allow us to provide that care, even if we're with the patient for six, seven, eight hours, or they have to be carried five, six, seven miles. Standard quote unquote systems of care don't always cut the mustard. And it's far and few between, and it requires a commitment on the provider's part to maintain a skill set, and maintain uh, a number of training hours to maintain these things, because you don't have to do these things that often. But an allergic reaction or an asthma attack, three hours hike into the woods without air resources. That's that's a long-term care problem that uh, I'll call traditional EMS structures just can't address.
1: I would agree. I think and we're on board with this because we see this as a problem is in the wilderness environment, very few EMS providers who, especially when they initially get into this work are trained to function in this environment, whether that's deserts, high desert, the mountains, the jungles, wherever it might be. There's very little training on actually operating and functioning within the environment. There's a lot of talks about improvisation and what can I do? to make this device that I don't have with me, which is all well and good. And I have some other stuff coming up, uh, some new episodes that'll be coming out that that address this. But is poor patient care based on a lack of a definition or bad providers? I would argue it's it's poor providers because if you have a good provider, regardless of their certification level, they know what good patient care is and they will be able to provide the best care they can within their limited resources, whether that's a wilderness environment or an urban traditional ambulance, just having a definition is not going to make wilderness providers better at wilderness after it's published.
0: So I agree with you and I disagree with you all at the same time. I think if we hold a standard that is based on a known, like if we can quantify some of these things that we can measure some of these things, if we can put a, a definition on these things, then we can measure or set expectations or set training standards To deliver a level of care, given the expected, like the known quantifiable expected environment that we're going to be working in, I think the patient is better served. A lot of systems that I've participated in in my 20 some odd years of doing what I guess we'll call wilderness EMS has involved taking traditional standards of care and then just doing that for longer out in the woods, man. Let me give you a couple examples of of how I'm thinking about this, Sean. You and I just attended a course. I'm just going to throw a head tilt to another non-sponsored entity here, but I actually really like the guy. You and I just attended a 12-lead a class by a gentleman named Bob Page, who is known for his 12-leadedness and all the things he talks about. He also does a a great program on capnography. I believe you're one of the systems you participate in has now made some of this education mandatory. But in that class, he talks about, it hasn't been that long that we've been doing 12 leads in the field. Prior to that, you know, it was a lead two peak at the heart and it was taken to the hospital. We have very, very, I'll, I'll call them standardized, known protocols and procedures based on the fact that we are now doing almost prophylactic we're, we're almost getting to the point of doing prophylactic 12 lead on anybody that had any sort of mental, altered mental state, chest pain, anything that would lead you to believe that there's some anomalous event going on, they get 12 leads. And based on the information that we are able to ascertain from the 12 lead, and now more recently moving into 15 leads and looking at different parts of the heart from different angles that we didn't look at eight or nine years ago, we're getting better care outcomes. If I use that same logic and say, Giving somebody N number of micrograms for a broken leg, splinting it quick, and then taking to the hospital is really different when you have a transport unit that's five minutes away or three minutes away when you got to move the patient versus you got to carry them for four hours or navigate a bunch of other circumstances. They might need different care. It's not the best example. I realize that that may not be the best one, but do thrombi become a problem if you have injuries that you wouldn't really worry about on a transport unit? even? If you're an hour from a hospital, but if you're with the patient for five, six, seven, eight hours, do you have to care about those things? Do we have to think about clotting factors, TXA use? You know, I don't know the answer to all these things. I just feel like extended care, if we can get a definition of what is wilderness, that allows us to start thinking about how do we care for people for four, five, six hours that could have better medical outcomes at the end of the day. Call me crazy. All right. You're
1: not quite crazy, but... You're going back to it's a training thing. Like if I have the gold standard, it's come down from on high. Joe Bu, the EMS guy, said here it is. This is the definition of wilderness EMS.
0: Do you know that guy by the way? Joe Bu met him twice. Cool. Um, Sounds like a cool dude. I've never met him.
1: We have the definition. How do we make those providers better at doing that? And there's only one way to do that, and that is training. Just because you have a solid definition, that didn't change anything it's a training thing, right? So you have somebody who's a normal medic in the military and they've essentially functioning it, depending on who they are and what unit, they're essentially functioning it somewhere around an advanced DMT to paramedic level, just on their day-to-day job. And then they take the big leap, they put their big boy pants on and they take a selection program and then they're going to become a soft medic, a special operations medic. Then they're sent off to six plus months of school to teach them how to do this. And this is where they're being taught all of those things that we're kind of talking about now, like prolonged field care. Sure, hey, is Airways compromised? him. Well, yes, maybe, maybe not. There are certainly circumstances where that might be your first go-to. There might also be considerations of, yeah, but if I have to hold on to him for the next five days, was that still the best choice? Probably, or he's not gonna breathe anymore. Continue, right? Whereas if you did a traditional ET tube intubation, do I really have to try and keep this guy now sedated? for that same five day period. So then you have a different mindset, a different thought process. Do I immediately go to tourniquet or do I have to try and convert a tourniquet later? Actual nursing care in the field. This guy's got dysentery. How am I going to handle that? These are problems that are learning to deal with. And so it's a training piece, right? You took somebody who's, Hey, Johnny's bleeding. I show up, I stuff guys, I put on a tourniquet, whatever it might be. And then the medevac shows up and he's gone. And that might still be, an hour or more, depending on the unit, the medics, et cetera, but they're doing all the same fundamental care. And then they're going to these other advanced courses and they're now learning, what am I going to do about this now? If I have him for the next two to five, six, seven days, it's it's just a training thing. It's a different
0: mindset and a mentality. Okay, cool. Uh, I'll double down and, and buy all of that. At the end of the day all of it comes down to training. You can't do a thing you didn't learn to do and you shouldn't be doing things you didn't maintain a skill set on. So you got to go maintain a skill set. And that's just it right
1: if we never ever defi- if we stuck with the legacy definition of wilderness and it was never it never went anywhere does that change the care you and I provide today? The answer is no, because that's really the definition that most people are still living under. It's the training piece. And that's where I feel on the wilderness EMS side, particularly wilderness EMS, we are severely lacking. For wilderness first aiders, wilderness first responders, those courses are pretty locked down. They teach, I think, the fundamentals they should be teaching. Could there be more environmental training? Yes, but there's only so much you can do in those finite time periods. The current standard for making a wilderness, air quotes, emt is pretty loose there's a a training company right now where i can get my wilderness emt upgrade all online well for the love of god children how am i becoming a wilderness emt if i did it online via my computer in my basement can't you become an emt online now too no you can't
0: you still have to do the practicals you can do all your ces online that's what it is yeah
1: i mean you get ces and other stuff and hybrid training courses you can do the vast majority of your academics online, but you still got to show up and do all your skills, practical training and everything else. You know, how can you tell somebody they're a wilderness provider after they sat through 16, 18 hours of online training via PowerPoint? You can't. I mean, come on, seriously.
0: I'm going to go do it. I'm going to do it right now. Yeah.
1: I'm going to do this. Me weekend. too. Man, I'm, I'll issue you a card. I got a training center. I'll print you a certificate tonight and make you a wilderness EMT. And that, my friend, is why we need the definition. We need a good definition. So that then we can begin the development of actual legitimate wilderness EMS certifications. Because if I show up with a wilderness EMT certificate in any of the 50 states, it's like, okay, cool. So you're an EMT. Most of them give zero fucks about a wilderness before your EMT-ness. That means I did 16 hours on the internet, but that didn't make me a wilderness provider. So we need to get to the point where we can provide standardized, codified wilderness EMS training so that if somebody says, I'm a certified wilderness paramedic or a certified wilderness EMT. That actually means something. It's not just, oh, cool. Whose two day class did you sit through? Okay. So most places want to run you through like a four or five day program to make you a wilderness EMT, but that's just drawing out the inevitable. It's all about making. I just for want to the
0: 18 hour course. I don't have that kind of time. I just nope. want the 18 hour course.
1: Nobody does, man.
0: Eight minute ads. Oh. <laughs> Touche, sir. Touche. Well, I think. I think my takeaways are as follows, Sean. We need a definition. You and I aren't smart enough to come up with one. We might be smart enough to say a thing that lets smart people actually come up with one. You and I have been doing this together uh, combined almost 40 years, give or take, in a number of different things that would be called wilderness environments. And I've seen a lot of improvement, but a definition is going to help drive quantifying the differences in my mind. What do you think?
1: And that's exactly, and I think that's the whole premise behind Dr. Hawkins really trying to push this whole formalized wilderness EMS piece is actually establishing a quantifiable subspecialty and not just call it wilderness because it takes place in the woods. I'm always kind of interested when I read certain WMS articles talking about the, I'm a physician who practices wilderness medicine because I'm at a hospital in Portland and I see people with frostbite. Okay, I mean, so do physicians in Chicago. How does that make you a wilderness physician? You did a wilderness wilderness fellowship Great. So you learned about the actual wilderness part of it. But to be a practicing wilderness anything, if you're not in the wilderness, you're practicing medicine in a hospital for injuries that were sustained in the wilderness. And that's my rant.
0: Well, I think you nailed it. I do want to say that you absolutely, in my mind, as a doc in Portland, and I'm saying this because I know a dude in Bend, and I love him. He does go out and treat frostbite in the wilderness. That's wilderness medicine. Treating frostbite in a hospital that was brought to you—that is not wilderness medicine,
1: uh, right? Exactly. Yeah, you're not a wilderness. I'm looking person. forward. <laughs> you got to be. In I'm the looking forward to the definition. Well, Doctor Hawkins has his definition. He uses it, and for those that don't know, Doctor Hawkins actually wrote a textbook called Wilderness EMS. It's a it's a good book. It's got some good, useful information on it. One of the better things is the entire front chapter about the history and background behind all this wilderness medicine stuff really good and interesting but they have a definition now the question is is that going to be the definition for all eternity yeah, i think there's still going to be some evolution some of it maybe maybe not i don't know i
0: hope so but i mean i really hope so because that's that's the definition of improvement making changes and making things better
1: well so then we kind of get into the but mike doesn't like it so it's the wrong definition you know if if a national association of wilderness physicians got together and said this is a good definition Why is it wrong? And I would say because of the transient nature. I'm agreeing with you there. Wilderness isn't transient. The wilderness is the wilderness, it is the environment. You have a generally urban place that's hit pretty hard by a natural disaster. Does that change things? Yes. Does that necessarily make downtown Los Angeles the wilderness? Yes and no. Most of the infrastructure is still functioning. The roads are still, most of them, going to be drivable. You're still going to have emergency vehicles and traditional responders all going about their business. Whereas if it's non-transient, that environment is the woods. It is the deserts. It is the mountains. And I think that's the piece that for me, if you just remove the word transient, it's pretty well in there, right? It's those geographic yeah. locations that are remote, limited resources, et cetera. I, I think that's pretty close to it. That's probably about as good as we're going to get in any sort of consensus anyway.
0: Yeah. I, I'm going to still reel and struggle with the concept of how the stuff gets there because I'm a stubborn, stubborn human being that uh, largely gets stuck in my ways. But I think you're right. I think the transient, taking transient out of the quantified definition, it gives a differentiation between a temporary event. And that temporary event could be 30 days. Oh, yeah. Um, Like a tornado can tear through town and rip up a fire department and they're simply without resources for a while. But that's a temporary event. If every time I get punched out, if that's going to be... A limited resource environment every time, that's probably wilderness as opposed to a transient weather event. And I can get behind that. I think the care rendered at the end of the day is probably pretty similar.
1: Yeah, I mean, more or less. EMS care is EMS care at the end of the day. I mean, whether you're at the EMT or paramedic level, providing care within your scope, it doesn't matter where it's done necessarily. Those skills are still the skills you need to have and be masters of.
0: And I was walking right toward a wrap up, but now I'm going to say I completely disagree with you. I, we can talk about it later. We do not have to talk about it on this podcast. Oh, but come on. Uh, if that were the case, if care was just care, then the concept of a community paramedic wouldn't exist. Yes, right? but that's not but, per- but-
1: That's a different level. We're not talking about community paramedicine in the backcountry. Community paramedicine. No, what I'm
0: saying is community paramedicine, like at a 5,000-foot view, is coming to your home, providing care, not necessarily taking you to the doctor place, right? Traditional paramedicine is come to uh, your home, provide you care, take you to the doctor place. Now, what I'm uh, saying is you're getting into different models
1: of community paramedicine because many community paramedics provide no care. They provide follow-up coaching and just wellness checks. Very few are providing care per se.
0: Right? Yeah, you're right. And I'm going to show my ignorance here because I know there's actually a legal definition that I don't know. And I should probably shut up right now. Because um, <laughs> there's actually like to be able to actually call it a community paramedic service, there are legal definitions that have to be met. Anyway, I'm making a half-baked argument that there are different kinds of paramedics and it's not just paramedicing. Well, that is and- correct.
1: Because we have critical care specialties. We have community paramedics. You could say that for the most part, most paramedics, or even most critical care paramedics, use very little of the critical care part of their training in their everyday jobs. They do on occasion, but for the most part, you and I both know many critical care medics work both ground and air, and it's not all day, every day, administering blood products, putting people on vents and pumps and everything else. There is that component, certainly. I mean, I do know
0: some flight medics that are constantly evaluating ABGs and looking at the eight drips that the patient's on, et cetera, et cetera. But that tends to be more transport than 911 response. Um,
1: There you go again. Interfacility transport. Interfacility transport. A paramedic running IFC is not going to have the same skill set as a 911 paramedic is going to have. They learned all the same things. But if you've been an interfacility paramedic for 10 years and you've never run 911, It's a different world and you're going to be a little bit off balance when you first get into that. Just like if you're a traditional urban paramedic or EMT, the first time you get into the wilderness thing and all of a sudden it's like, hey, cool, hand me the whatever. It's like, did you pack it? Well, no, then you don't have it. Because again, it goes back to your thing of, did you bring it with you on your back? Or did the helicopter lower you with it? Oh, see, now you didn't have to walk with it, but you still got those limited resources. You got to get off the a mode of insert, man. It's it's the game right, that you well, have. It's it's the finite resources piece.
0: I'm gonna go cry a little bit to myself, and uh, probably come to the conclusion that you're right, and I should shut up about the how you get there. Yeah, with that, Doc Hawkins, if you're listening, or uh, you want to have a conversation, we're in. We think about this stuff a lot, Doc Hawkins, Doc Prince. If you guys want to talk, have a conversation. It sounds like you guys think about this a lot. We think about it all the time. Sean and I constantly have conversations about this. It was one of the primary contributing factors as to why we started this podcast, because we believe the world is different enough that uh, it deserves its, its own thought process and contemplation. And with that, Sean, you want to take us out? No. All right, then. I guess I'll yeah. just call this the end of the podcast. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. All right. Uh, if you guys do have comments on this, if you have, you know. You're about to hear the closing comment thing where I tell you if you have any comments or questions, to hit us up an email. But seriously, if if you have thoughts on this, I want to hear them. So if anybody listening to this wants to send us an email, send us an email to the show at emsonthemountain.com or uh, hit us up on social media.
1: Even if you're a doctor and you want to yell at me for saying you're not a wilderness physician because you're not in the wilderness. Okay, I'll take it. But get yourself in the wilderness. I'm just saying.
0: And to be honest, he's just a paramedic. He doesn't know anything.
1: That's true. Damn, dirty, dirty paramedic.
0: Yeah, just a uh, an ambulance monkey. All right. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of Wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash Wilderness EMS. Until the next episode.
1: Thanks for joining us, and until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.